So we're doing, we're also starting, this is the first Sunday of our You Asked For It series where we uh, sometimes do this in the summer. We invite participation from the congregation in terms of supplying me with topics, names, Bible verses, whatever it is on a different series. And uh, this year it's Sinners and Saints. And so we're looking at, at Bible personalities uh, from throughout Scripture, anywhere, Old Testament or New Testament. And the idea of the You Asked For It series is to visit Scripture and people and topics and themes that we might not regularly uh, get to. We might gloss over, we might avoid them deliberately, we might just not notice them in the Bible. So we think of things like, why does Paul talk about Alexander the coppersmith? Why is Malchus important? Who is Malchus? You guys are going to be Googling that in the next five minutes. Nothing in Scripture is without purpose. And so this series can lead us to places and lead us into encountering people that God has preserved in His Scripture for good reason. So even though the You Ask For It series seems a little gimmicky, it's a good gimmick because it takes us places we wouldn't otherwise go. And our first sinner and saint that we're going to do doesn't even have a name. It's the woman who anoints and washes Jesus' feet at a dinner party with Simon the Pharisee and a group of his friends. And And this is an important incident that is recorded in the life of Jesus. And it's important because it focuses our intention in the most dramatic way possible on the most important aspect of our own Christian faith, which is our personal relationship with Jesus Christ himself. One of our greatest dangers is to forget that the person of Jesus We're interested quite often in many things about Jesus. We're interested in reading the Bible and discovering truth about Jesus. We are interested in doctrines of the Bible and things about God. But we cannot forget that first and above all, the whole Bible from Old Testament to New, from Genesis to Revelation, teaches us that Jesus is the one we must know. Jesus is the one that is talked about in Genesis when... God promises to Eve that her offspring will bruise the head of the serpent even as he strikes at his heel. Jesus is the one that the prophets are all foretelling. Jesus is the one that is pictured in the shadow of Leviticus and the law. Jesus is the person who has come to save us, and we cannot forget that. We must come to know in a personal way Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Jesus saves us. Not knowledge about Him, not facts about His doctrine, not understanding biblical orthodoxy. Jesus the person is the one who saves us and is the most important person that we can know. And we're saved by being in right relationship with Him. And so at the end of this story, when we get to it, and it's in Luke 7, uh, Luke 7 verses 36 to 50, if you want to turn there in your Bible or if you want to tap there on your phone. When we get to the end of the story, the people at the supper are going to ask, who is this? Who even forgives sin? Who is this man? And that is the question that this story forces us to consider. Who is Jesus to us? Who is he? Let's read and let God's word shed light on our hearts. As two people consider the central figure of Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, and what these two people think of them and all that he is and does for them. Luke 7, verses 36 to 50, and I'll just pray before I read. Father, I ask for your Holy Spirit to be here among us as we know that he is, and especially that he is opening up our hearts and our minds, taking scales from our eyes that we can see, not just see truth in your word, but see our relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, and where we stand in that, so that we can get our hearts right with you. 
and know the joy that we're going to encounter in this passage. Amen. So one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One was owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. And then, turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So this is the scene that we have in this account of Jesus' ministry. They're eating probably outdoors. Uh, if you've ever been to the Middle East, if you've ever been to Israel, you know that quite often, especially in the city, these houses are built uh, in sort of a square pattern with an open courtyard in the middle, and they're two or three stories. And quite often, people would gather in that middle courtyard, and it's kind of semi-public. It's kind of like your front yard. People kind of come in and out. There's big kind of hallway into it that leads to the outdoors. And Jesus is reclining in the Middle Eastern fashion of eating at a low table. And he's probably leaning on his left arm and he's eating right-handed and his feet are kind of extended kind of behind him away from the table. And so with the table in the middle, there'd be a ring of people facing inward with their feet toward the outside of the circle in this kind of courtyard. And he's there and the woman finds him there engaged in eating in conversation with Simon the Pharisee, and Simon's friends. And, and Simon probably just invited Jesus home after synagogue, right? This is like lunch after church on Sunday. And Simon has invited Jesus to find out more about him. He's curious about this young rabbi, and he wants to know more about him, so he invites him into his house for lunch with some of his friends. That's the scene. And then you have the woman. And this woman, and we, we never get her name. She's almost certainly not Mary Magdalene, that's a tradition that kind of started about two or three hundred years after the New Testament was written, um, that she might be Mary Magdalene. She's probably not, but this nameless woman, she makes her way into this party in this courtyard, and she's identified as one with a sinful past. She's a woman of the city. You pretty much can imagine who she is and the things that she has done, and I don't really need to elaborate on that. But this is this woman that comes, and, and there unfolds the scene 
with her that is really quite scandalous. And it's scandalous for four primary characteristics that we, I think, in our culture, in our day and age, have to get our mind around. There's first of all is the weeping, right? She's crying. This woman comes into this dinner party crying. She's crying so hard that Jesus' feet are wet with her tears. So it's, it's not a dainty cry. This is an ugly cry, okay? This is mascara running. This is false eyelashes coming off, right? This is an ugly cry. So much water coming out of her eyes that Jesus' feet are wet, and they're so wet that she doesn't have a towel for the foot washing, so she wipes his feet off with her hair. So there's this, you're trying, imagine this, you're trying to have dinner, and there's this ugly cry going on back here behind some people. And then there's the hair. And the significance of the hair, in Numbers 5, 11 to 22, we read in the law that if a woman is suspected of adultery, she's brought to the temple for purification and forgiveness. The priest is to let down her hair and unbind it and kind of dishevel her hair, and it's left that way by the priest as a suspected or actual adulteress. And so as a result of this law, over 2,000 years of having this law, Jewish custom has been that Women, especially married women, always bind up their hair and they cover their hair in public. A a married Jewish woman bound up her hair on her wedding night and from then on she never went out in public with her hair unbound or uncovered. And she only took it down and uncovered it for her husband. And this was considered what they call dat moshi. In other words, Torah law. Not just advice, this is law from the Torah. And so just to give you an example of how clear this ruling was in the Jewish culture... I'll just read to you the commentary of a couple of rabbis. Rabbi Shlomo ben Adarit says that hair, which normally extends outside the kerchief and her husband is used to it, is not considered sensual. In Talmudic times, the Moharim al-Shakar said that it was permissible to allow some strands to dangle out the front between the ear and the forehead Despite the custom being to cover every last strand of a woman's hair, the ruling created that many Orthodox Jews to understand as the rule of tefak, that is, the hand's breadth of hair that allows some hair loose in the form of bangs. Okay, so this is how hair is dealt with in the Jewish culture. There is strict instruction about how many strands of hair between the ear and the forehead are allowed out and how long they can be, the hand's breadth. Okay? So suffice it to say it was considered an absolute disgrace for a Jewish woman to unbind her hair in a public situation. She might as well have just taken her dress off, basically, in this situation. This is scandalous. This is terrible. But this is what she does. She has her hair undone and disheveled, and she's wiping Jesus' feet in the presence of Pharisees. And with the reputation that she has in the city... The allusion to the law in Numbers would not be lost on any of these Pharisees. She might as well just have harlot written across her back. She's saying, I'm an adulteress. My hair is disheveled. It's taken down in public. You know who I am. And then thirdly, you have the kissing. On top of all of this, she's she's kissing Jesus' feet, not his cheeks, but his feet. Now, in our culture today, the amount of kissing that goes on in the Bible for us guys is frankly a little uncomfortable. Okay? There's way too much kissing. And again, I don't know if you've traveled to the Middle East. I've worked in the Middle East several times, and I've been over there a few times, and it is odd to get up in the morning and get kissed by your driver, okay? You're just trying to get a taxi, right? 
You're not looking for anything else. Just a taxi. That's all I'm looking for. But this is what they do, right? They, they just, they're kissers, okay? And so this was the custom, of course, here, right? And so the idea is that, that normally when you greet somebody, you would be kissing. But this kissing was very unexpected. To kiss feet, nobody kissed feet. I mean, feet were dirty. That's why you washed them every time you went into somebody's house. They were considered unclean. That's why when you sat, they, you reclined with your feet away from the table. You didn't sit cross-legged with your dirty feet right up against the table. You, you leaned forward and kept your feet away. So her kissing his feet was as startling to them as it was to us. And then the perfume. This not cheap stuff. It's in an alabaster jar. She probably carried it around her neck. It's the kind of jar you put the good stuff in, something you just dab a little bit behind your ears, probably several weeks' wages worth, maybe a thousand or a couple thousand dollars worth of perfume. You don't just pour it on people's feet, but here she is honoring Jesus at any cost, any social cost, any financial cost. This woman is laying it all out. The picture here that we need to see is that this woman, without a doubt, without any shadow of a doubt, treasures and cherishes Jesus Christ. I imagine that this woman is one of the women or one of the many people who probably heard Jesus preach out in the countryside or out in the city. And at various times, as you know, Jesus has made the claim and proclaimed to people that they must repent and be baptized, that they must repent and return to God, that they must repent and turn from their sin. And I imagine that this woman has done that. She's heard him preach. She's repented. She's been in the crowd and maybe just hasn't been able to get to him or he's, you know, slipped away. And, but she has repented. She knows, she clearly knows who he is. She clearly loves him and cherishes him and desires to honor him. And so she's finally sought him out and found him at this dinner party. And at all social costs, at any awkwardness, at all financial cost of honoring him, she is at his feet worshiping him and loving him and cherishing him in the most startling and dramatic way. And I say this not because I'm trying to tell a a shocking tale, but because all of this detail is in the text and directly relevant to the text, it is what is happening, and it's key to what follows next. It's key to what Simon the Pharisee is thinking, and it's also key to what we learn about ourselves in the presence of a holy God, or what we should learn about ourselves. And so this sets the stage now for Simon. We've talked about the scene, we've talked about the woman, and now Simon and his thoughts. And it's so obvious to everyone who's gathered there who she is and what she type of woman that she is and what's happening, that Simon can't figure out how this supposed prophet can't see what everybody else sees. And Simon's a Pharisee. He's probably fairly wealthy. He's well-respected without question. He knows all of the Scripture by heart. He knows Numbers 5, 11 to 16. He knows the rabbinical teaching in the Scriptures. He understands the law and he keeps it. And he has invited Jesus to dinner because he's interested in Jesus. He's probably heard his teaching in the city, or heard him at the synagogue. He's maybe seen some of his miracles. And Simon is curious. Simon wants to know more about Jesus. He's interested in Jesus. He's trying to measure Jesus up. Like, what kind of rabbi is this? This 29, 30-year-old young guy, don't know what school he came from, never really claimed who his teacher was, Gamaliel or whoever. So, So Simon is trying to measure Jesus up trying to figure out where he fits in, when in fact, we understand that Jesus is actually measuring Simon up. But Simon doesn't realize it. 
But just look how he approaches Jesus. He says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So he's, he's judging both the woman and Jesus. Right? Simon is judging Jesus because he doesn't seem like much of a prophet, and he's definitely judging the woman for the spectacle going on at his dinner party and calling her a sinner. And how often are we, perhaps, perhaps you are guilty, are, perhaps we were all guilty before we came to know Jesus, of approaching Jesus in this way. We approach Jesus like we're going to measure him up. We're going to see whether Jesus meets our criteria. How does he compare to Gandhi? How does he compare to Buddha? Right? How does he compare to these other religions? How does he compare to these other great people of history? How does he compare to other religious figures? Or we want to compare and kind of measure up his teaching. How does what he say and what he does measure up to what we think morality is today? You know, what's his position on gender identity? And I'll just decide whether Jesus fits my worldview or not. And we approach Jesus from time to time trying to measure him up, never realizing that he is already measuring us up. And our very approach of of coming to him, trying to measure him up, and categorize Jesus puts us in danger. See, the problem with Simon is that he's able to say this woman is a sinner, but he's unable to acknowledge that he's a sinner. Simon's sitting in judgment over the woman, and he's sitting in judgment over Jesus. He's judging both of them. And so Simon has a perspective problem. It's a different kind of perspective problem than we talked about with Job, but it's still a problem, and Jesus now sets out to fix the problem that Simon has. And it's important to note here that Jesus didn't just eat with the poor and the sick. Right? Jesus came and we often think he's always eating you know, with the poor and he's looking, taking care of sinners and in all those places and healing the sick and the lame. Yeah, but Jesus came and ate with Pharisees too because Jesus knows the middle class and the religious people need him just as much as everybody else. And so Jesus wants to do some work on Simon's heart here. So Simon thinks to himself and they're not as secret as he thinks and it sets the stage for this parable and it's it's very i have like radar for irony it's just so ironic that as simon is sitting there thinking this guy isn't much of a prophet jesus is literally reading his mind and then answers his question that he never spoke out loud this seems to just go over simon's head yeah he's not a very good prophet don't worry about it jesus answers and says to him simon i have something to say to you and he answered say it teacher and he says, a certain money lender had two debtors, one owned 500 denarii, another 50, and when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love more? And Simon answered, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. It's a very simple parable. We can see it crystal clear right away. The money lender is God. The two debtors are the woman and Simon. One has a debt of about 50 normal minimum wage days labor. The other one has a debt of about 50 days wages. The denarii is about a day's wage. So one owns, owes, let's say, $5,000. The other owes $50,000. So you got a $5,000 debt. you got a $50,000 debt. The money lender excuses both of them. He cancels them both. And the point of the parable is very simple. The more a person realizes how big of a sin debt that they have and how utterly bankrupt that they are to be able to pay back this sin debt and unable to, the more that person loves God when they are forgiven. Even Simon knows the answer. He says, I suppose the one who had the larger debt canceled. And it's kind of like, what do you mean you suppose, Simon? Like, yes, that's the answer, of course. Of course the 50,000 forgiven loves more. Those forgiven the most love most. 
But here's the tragic point. It's a simple parable. That's not hard to unpack. But here's the point that Jesus wants to make. A few points, actually. The tragic thing is Simon thought that he owed maybe 5000 Maybe Simon didn't even think he owed 5000 Maybe less. Simon probably thought that he could actually cover his debt. Be fine. Right? Like, I might owe something in the sin debt, but I do so many good things, and I'm such an orthodox person that I'm pretty much covered. What he didn't see is that whatever the sin debt is that he did owe is he couldn't repay it anyway. Both of these borrowers in the parable have to have their debts canceled because neither of them could repay no matter how big it was. And so Jesus is saying, Simon, get this. The main point of the parable is not to put you on a scale. It doesn't mean you're a 50 denarii sinner and she's a 500 denarii sinner. The point of the parable is this. She washes my feet with tears and wipes them with her hair and you don't even have a servant wash my feet with water and wipe them with a cloth. She's not stopped kissing my feet and you don't even give me two pecks on the cheek when I arrive as your guest. She anoints my feet with perfume and you didn't even offer me a little bit of cheap olive oil to get my hair ready for the dinner party. Now notice how personal Jesus is here because the point of this parable is that the most important thing that we can never forget is that we must have a personal relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. All the doctrine, all the orthodoxy, all the good behavior, all the appearances to the world mean nothing in comparison to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Just notice how personal he is here, how attentive Jesus is to the treatment that he is receiving from this woman. He points out to Simon everything that this woman has been doing since she came into the room. Even though he is God incarnate, he notices every intimate and personal interaction of his followers with him. He's, no, he's done this elsewhere. If you read about his time with Mary and Martha, when you think of the children that he notices and invites into him, when you think about the widow in the temple who gives the tiny amount, nothing escaped Jesus' notice. Jesus is intimately aware of every personal response to him. Nothing goes overlooked. No small gesture is missed by Jesus. He's concerned about our relationship to him above everything else, and he's concerned about our heart's response to him. This woman clearly cherishes and treasures Jesus. And and I use that treasuring and cherishing language a lot to the point that, you know, maybe you're getting a little bit tired of it. But I keep saying you have to treasure and cherish Jesus because that is the heart of discipleship. Jesus is the pearl of great price. He's the treasure in the field. The person will sell anything to acquire that pearl, to acquire that treasure. This is who Jesus is to this woman. And Jesus doesn't miss it. He sees her heart from her love. Even though Jesus right now is sitting at the right hand of the Father, He's still the same. He's not missing any of our personal acts of love and our cherishing and our treasuring of Him. And you say, how do I know this? Because later on, after Jesus has ascended and He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, even though He's in heaven, He's not just some distant person that we... Learn some facts about. Because you remember when Saul is on the road to Damascus, after he's been persecuting the church and persecuting Christians and and trying to drive Christianity into the ground, Jesus appears to Saul and he says to him with sorrow, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So Jesus is not unaware of what is going on. 
He's taking it quite personally when Saul is running around persecuting the church and the Christians. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this to me? Jesus is acutely aware of our relationship to him, and it is precious to him because it is life and death for us. And so what does Jesus see? Jesus sees this woman washing his feet, which is deeply personal. He's washing his feet with her own tears and her own hair, and it is so unexpected. And on the other hand, Simon, just the expected courtesy of when somebody comes in off the street of having a servant wash my feet at the door, you didn't even do that, Simon. You didn't even do the impersonal courtesy of having one of your slaves wash my feet. This woman, her kisses show on my feet, show how the utter humility and reverence that she has for me. Simon, you didn't even greet me as an equal. You didn't even give me the two-peck-on-either-cheek kiss. You You didn't even greet me as one of your peers when I came in, and this woman is kissing my feet. Her anointing is with this costly perfume that comes out of her wealth or lack thereof. And Simon, you didn't even give me some cheap olive oil for my hair. You see the difference, how personal this woman is and how impersonal Simon is. And, and Jesus points every one of these things out to Simon. He says, you see the difference, Simon? Are you getting what the parable's about? The point of the parable, Simon, is that she knows her sin and you are, are oblivious to your own. She treasures me with her heart and you do not. The point, Simon, is that she is saved and you are not. Whether you're a 50 or a 500 or a 5,000 denarius sinner, it doesn't matter. Your response to me, Simon, in your heart shows me where you stand compared to her. You see, in order to activate God's forgiveness, there's three things we have to do. And if you don't do these things, God can't forgive you. We have to realize that we actually are sinners. We have to meditate upon the fact and realize that we are sinful people. 50, 500, or 5,000 doesn't matter. We are sinful. There's a sin debt that we cannot pay. We have to realize that we owe God something that we can never repay and that we, by the grace of God, don't need to. And then thirdly, we need to trust completely in God's undeserved mercy as the only hope for our forgiveness of that debt, which is what this woman has done. You see, she's done all three of those things. She knows she's a sinner. She knows there's a debt she cannot pay. And she is trusted entirely in Christ for the forgiveness of that debt. She's done all three of those things, and Simon hasn't done any of them. And the greater the debt forgiven, the greater the love will be. The love shows that that reflects the acknowledgement of the repentance that you feel for your sin. I'll give you another example. St. Augustine, as he's writing his confession, St. Augustine writes, I went to Carthage, where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. This was the age at which the frenzy gripped me, and I surrendered myself entirely to lust, which your law forbids, but human hearts are not ashamed to sanction. Because of this, my soul fell sick. It broke out in ulcers and looked about desperately for some material means to relieve the itch that those ulcers caused. But material things could not be true objectives of my love. To love and to have my love returned was my heart's deepest desire. My God, my God of mercy, how good you were to me. My love was returned and finally shackled me. 
Do you see what Augustine is saying? He's saying, I needed to love and have my love returned. And I couldn't fix my love on anything on this world. I had all kinds of lusts and none of them satisfied until finally I fell on the mercy of God. This is probably the greatest theologian of the first ten centuries of the church. He's literally captive and soul-sick in his sin until he repents and discovers the love of Jesus that he could return and that Jesus would return to him. And if you read his confessions, they're a litany of his awareness of his sin and thus an awareness of his love for Jesus Christ. Why do we show so little love for Jesus? Why do I ask myself, do, you know, is, do I love Jesus as much as I'm supposed to love Jesus? Why is my love for Jesus as a person growing dim? It's because quite often I have never really seen or faced up to or I have been denying the depths of my sin. And we don't have to enter into the depths of sin to love God greatly, but we do have to come to a conscious realization of who we are and what we need. Jesus turns to Simon and he says, do you see this woman? And it seems like such a dumb question, right? Of course I see her. She's the whole reason I'm thinking what I'm thinking. This is my dinner party and she is causing this amazing scandalous scene. What do you think, Jesus? Yes, of course I see her. But that's not what Jesus is asking. He's saying, Simon, do you see her? Simon, I don't think you see her. You see her, but you're not seeing her. Get what I mean? Simon, you don't see her. You don't see the love that she has for me. You don't see the repentance that she is demonstrating. You don't see the trust that she has in my salvation. You think you see her, but you don't really see. And this is what Jesus saw in the woman. He saw her love. Matthew 22, 36-38, there's another scribe who's asking Jesus. He says, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. Jesus is like, this woman is fulfilling the first and the greatest commandment. She's loving me with all her soul and all her mind and all her heart. And so he says to her, your sins are forgiven. Her sins are forgiven. Simon, he doesn't have a word for. He doesn't even say anything to Simon. Just her sins are forgiven. Simon, you're clever enough to fill in the silence, right? You're a smart Pharisee. And then those at the table who were with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And that's the question of this text. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to us? Who is Jesus to you? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And that's important that we see that and look at that. It wasn't because she wept. It wasn't because she washed and anointed. It wasn't because of the love that she was saved. As though if we just work up enough a static kind of you know, emotional response to Jesus, then he's going to save us. No, no, no. Jesus makes it very clear here. He says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And this is why I'm quite certain that this woman had, obviously she knew Jesus, but he had, she had heard Jesus and she had had faith in Jesus. She had put her trust in Jesus. She had hoped in him that he was the answer to her salvation. She, he was the solution to her sin problem. And she repented and in her faith she was saved. And then out of her faith she loved greatly. She treasured and cherished Christ because her faith had saved her. And then he says, go in peace. 
Jesus lifted the guilt and the shame from this woman to the point that she was accepted and she found her new identity in the one person who mattered the most, who matters for eternity. And it didn't matter to her what the Pharisees thought of her. It didn't matter to her what the citizens thought of her. She doesn't care how awkward or embarrassed. Her overt love of Jesus makes her look to others. She is with Jesus with nothing to hide. And she is accepted just as she is. Jesus accepts her and says, go in peace. The Greek word there for peace is Irene. It's actually my mom's name. It's a great biblical name, Irene. It's the Greek word that corresponds to the Hebrew word shalom. It means harmonious wholeness. That's the reward of this woman for her repentance and for her faith. Jesus says, you go out harmoniously whole in peace. Now the lesson for us here is that repentance is not easy. It is a hard road to open up our hearts and our history to Jesus. To be at Jesus' feet with our hair down and weeping and snotty-nosed and crying and saying, Jesus, this is the white-hot mess of who I am. It's all I got. But I trust you. I trust in you, the person of Jesus. I don't trust in the orthodoxy of the Jewish faith. I don't trust in the law even. Paul says the law is dead. We're made alive in Christ. I trust in the person of Jesus Christ. You're all the only one that matters. It's hard to do that. It's hard to admit that we're bankrupt, that we have nothing, that we literally have nothing to offer God. Nothing that we can do that puts God in our debt and causes Him to recognize our righteousness or causes Him to owe us respect like Simon felt He was owed. Simon is sitting there measuring up Jesus, trying to decide whether this young rabbi is deserving of Simon's respect. And Simon has no idea. There is nothing he can do, nothing he can be that puts Jesus in his debt like Jesus owes Simon salvation because he's been such a good Pharisee. It's hard to accept that we are bankrupt. It's hard to accept that we can come to Jesus completely empty and he will meet us right there. It's hard. That's what this scene shows us. But then, if we go there, with our hair down and our tears and our sorrow and our love for Christ, When Jesus saves us like that, we are filled with a love, we are filled with a treasuring and a cherishing of Jesus Christ that makes you want to seek Him out and show your love to Him. There's no social price you're not willing to pay. There's no honor that you could offer Him that you would hold back. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul uses this phrase. It's such a cool phrase. Talking about his ministry and everything that he does and everything that he preaches and everything, how he changed his whole life. He says of all the disciples, him and the other apostles that followed him, he says, Christ's love compels us. It's a compelling love. It's the engine behind our Christian activity. We're not compelled by duty. We're not compelled by law. We're not compelled by fear of what other people think. We're not compelled by bribery of some future reward. We're compelled by love for Jesus Christ. And this woman was compelled by love to honor Jesus at all costs. That is the sign of true salvation. When our hearts are turned from loving ourselves or loving the world to loving Jesus Christ, it's the sign of true discipleship. There's no pride and there's also no shame. There is just humble affection for the debt that has been paid. You cannot pay that debt. 
But understand this, you can't stop the fact that Jesus has paid it for you. Jesus has gone to the cross for you. He's paid the debt. It's done. All you can do is come to him and say, Jesus, I need what you have paid for me. And then all we can do as Christians is live in a way worthy of the price that was paid and in love respond to that. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to close off this section of Scripture with this prayer. Lord, that we would love you like this woman. She was creating a scandalous scene. She was perhaps easily the most despised person in that neighborhood at that point in time. Everyone was shocked and appalled. And yet, she was the one that was saved. She was the one who showed that she trusted you. She was the one whom your heart was bent towards. She's a hero of our faith. That we could only be like her, and too often we are like Simon. Cool and collected and intellectual. Very interested in your doctrine and in your book and your orthodoxy. But not humbly broken and submitted to the reality of our sin and returning our love to you. Father, I pray for each one of us, those that know you and those that do not yet know you, that our walk this week would bring us closer into our knowledge of our need for you and responding in the most awkward, prideless, humble, extravagant way, even ecstatically, to just shower you with our love that's more than deserved. You need to change our hearts to do that, Lord. I pray for that miracle this week in Christ's name. Amen.